Well, we're going to spend uh, some time at the end uh, of our service uh, praying for uh, Ukraine and the situation that's going on there. Uh, but I want to do that at the end because the passage tonight from Amos uh, is really helpful in helping us to pray uh, as, uh, according to the scriptures. Uh, as we look at this passage, we'll see uh, God's, uh, how God sees the actions of all nations uh, and judges them uh, accordingly. Uh, so it's going to help us to pray. Uh, so turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Uh, Amos, as I said last week, might be quite unfamiliar uh, to many of us. Uh, so to help you, if you have a church Bible, it's page 917. Uh, and in the larger print Bible, it's page 1424. Uh, and this evening, we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, to chapter 2 and verse 5, uh, as God uh, judges Israel's neighbors, the nations around Israel. <clears throat> I'll give you just a moment to turn, turn there. And let's read from chapter 1 and verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kia, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent. 
because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult, amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is God's word. As we've been uh, watching and listening in recent days uh, to news about the conflict in Ukraine, uh, one of the uh, repeated calls is for punitive action to be taken against the Russian government and its allies. And so there's much talk of things like sanctions being imposed. The point is that people want to see justice done. But the sad reality is that very often, justice is not done to the leaders of nations who commit atrocities. At the end of the Second World War, many people felt an injustice was done when many leading Nazis, including Adolf Hitler himself, committed suicide rather than give account for their crimes. I recently watched a movie about the capture of Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust. Uh, What was interesting was that the Israelis who went to capture him as he was living in Argentina really, in one sense, wanted just to kill him. And they had ample opportunity to do so. But they felt with their government that this man needed to stand trial and give an account for his crimes before he was killed for those crimes. Eichmann was uh, taken to Israel. He was tried and then hung for his crimes. But that's actually quite unusual. Many, many despots, And tyrants have died very peaceably in their beds. And when we read of crimes against humanity, one of the questions we may ask ourselves is, will there be justice? Is it right that some people die before they are called to account for their crimes? We saw that even in our own nation just a few years ago after Jimmy Savile died. He died peacefully in his bed, 
and then was found to have committed atrocious sexual abuse. And people thought, it's not fair that this man has just died at peace with all those victims left behind. It is very seldom that justice is served against people and nations and leaders who commit these atrocious crimes. But what we see in Amos here is that there will be justice. That the God of all the earth is the righteous judge of all nations. And he will not allow crimes to go unpunished. Last week we saw that the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. And in a culture where they felt that the gods of their land protected their territory, the Lord who roars from Zion is the God of all the earth. And here we see he will judge all the earth. One of the striking things about what we've just read in Amos is that God pronounces judgment against foreign nations that surround Israel Nations that had not received the benefit of receiving God's law to instruct them. And so we may ask, if these pagan nations have not received God's revelation, surely they don't deserve to be judged for their crimes. But we read in Romans that they are not without moral responsibility. They are not without the law being written on their conscience. And so they are held accountable for their atrocious actions. That's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 2. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So although our conscience is marred, It is not eradicated. All humans are moral beings. And here we see that all mankind, all nations are held to account for their crimes. Interestingly, the word for sins or transgressions, which is repeated over and over again in the chapter we read, literally means a rebellion against God. So although they have not had God's revelation, they are rebelling against what God has put on their conscience. They are held to account. And what we're going to see as we look through this chapter is that the judge of the nations is calling the nations of Amos' day to account for their crimes against humanity. Crimes that we see in the nations today. And what we need to understand is including our own nation. We're going to see that as we go through. So to tackle this passage, we're going to look briefly at each nation's sin, how that applies today, and then we're going to look at a more general application at the end. But before we look at each nation in turn, I want us to consider the pattern of these oracles, how they're structured which will help us to understand them. And there's four points of recognition uh, I want you to notice. Four points. First of all, notice that each one explains who is the judge. 
It says, this is what the Lord says. Over and over, that's repeated. So the Lord God of Israel, who dwells in Zion, is speaking as the judge of all the nations, which I've just mentioned. So it's the Lord who is the judge. That's the first point to notice that's repeated. The second point to notice is how each oracle begins. For three sins of the nation, even for four, I will not relent. Now, Amos is speaking as a prophet writing in poetry. The Lord is not saying here, well, you're okay for three sins, but once you get to four, once you get to that number, literally, then you're done. What it means is this, sin has been heaped upon sin, and God has allowed them to go so far, but now God's patience has run out. I haven't acted straight away, the Lord says, but the fourth sin represents enough is enough. Thirdly, notice that each nation is judged by fire coming upon their fortresses. Now, in these days, burning cities was a common part of ancient warfare. And God is presented here as a divine warrior who employs his devouring fire as a weapon of war. But fire also is a symbol of God's judgment throughout Scripture, not least in the New Testament when we see the descriptions of hell. And then finally and fourthly, notice that there are seven nations that surround Israel being judged here. We'll look at them on a map next week because it makes sense to next week. You'll see why then. But around Israel here, there are seven nations being judged. And often in the Bible, and I believe so here, that seven is a number that's representing the completeness of God's judgment against the nations. Here... God is showing that all nations are coming under his judgment. And the three plus four sins, adding up to seven, also shows that there is a completeness in their sins, which means there is enough. Now I'm going to judge. Hopefully those points make sense and help us to understand what's going on. But if I'm going to summarize, here's a sentence that might help. This is what's going on in Amos chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. The Lord is judging the nations for their sins, a judgment that is total and deserved. The Lord is judging the nations for their sins, a judgment that is total and deserved. So if you get a bit lost as we look at what each nation has done... That's the big point of the passage. The Lord is judging the nations for their sins, a judgment that is total and deserved. So let's examine why God judges these seven nations. So I've got uh, seven points, but they are very brief, so don't worry, we're not going to be here all night. Uh, but we're going to look at each of the seven nations in turn and see what they have done. And what we'll see is that the same things go on today. So first of all, we see uh, Damascus. Damascus are treating people as having no value. Uh, Damascus is the capital city of Syria, 
it still is today. And sometimes when prophets speak about a whole country, they'll use the capital city as another way of describing that country. And we, and we do that today. So, uh, for example, if, if we were to want to know uh, the opinion of Washington on a particular policy, we know that we're looking at the opinion of the United States of America, not just the capital city. And the Syrians here are coming under God's judgment because, notice in verse 3, she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Now, threshing is an agricultural term. It's the method of separating corn from chaff. And to get the corn, um, you want to get rid of the chaff, so you're left with the corn, which is the bit that you want. And in Amos's day, uh, wooden boards with iron teeth underneath would do this work as they were raked over and over again over the grain. But rather than threshing grain here, they are threshing Gilead. Gilead was a part of Israel, not too far from Damascus. And so it appears that the Syrians had invaded and murdered many people, treating them as if they were just chaff to be separated and thrown away. Now, it could literally mean people were massacred, uh, using this kind of sledge going over them. But it could also be a metaphor. But the bigger point is that the people of Gilead... People made in the image of God were treated as though they were of no value, thrown away as an, as an object. Now, sometimes in our world, we see this on a large scale, where there is genocide of, of whole groups of people, just to get rid of them. Uh, we recently had uh, the, the Holocaust Memorial Day, and that kind of thing comes to mind when the Nazis at the time looked for what they called a final solution to what they saw as a problem. Describing people as if they're a problem to just be disposed of. Even today, the way groups such as the Uyghur Muslims in China are being treated is another example of treating people as if they have no value whatsoever. On a perhaps smaller scale, even in our own country, when we see companies treating people as just a policy number to exploit, or scammers that phone up to, to try and get money out of people, treating them as an object to be exploited and then disposed of, rather than someone in God's image, is another example of this kind of thing going on. And in verse 4, we see that God will not allow this kind of behavior toward people made in his image to go unpunished. The fire of judgment is coming on Syria. Hazael and Ben-Hadad were both ruling dynasties in the 8th and 9th centuries. Their house or line and their capital cities will be destroyed. And the punishment continues in verse 5. The gate of Damascus there refers to uh, the gate of a city that has a wooden bar behind it to lock it and stop people getting in. But this wooden bar, this gate will be destroyed and broken down so there will be no defense. Uh, the, the, the king in the valley of Avon and the scepter in Beth Eden refers 
uh, to the king's uh, pleasure resorts. Uh, Valley of Avon literally means valley of wickedness. Beth Eden means like a place of pleasure or paradise. And the king who lives in these places of wickedness and pleasure will be destroyed there. Uh, If you like a, a, a just or apt place for him to die. And then finally, the people of Aram will go into exile to Kia. Uh, Kia is the place where the Syrians originated. It was their place of, uh, of beginning. And so if you like, uh, Amos is saying there's going to be a reversal of history. All of your accomplishments will be undone. You're going to go right back to where you started. And in 732 BC, they were invaded by the Assyrian army who did really exactly what verse 5 describes. The Lord judges those who treat people as having no value. Secondly, in Gaza, if Damascus treated people of having no value, Gaza used people for a monetary value. Gaza was a, a capital city of the Philistines, Again, representative of the whole of the Philistine people. And this oracle denounces human uh, trafficking in human slaves. Uh, Gaza was a center of the slave trade, as it was situated on a crossroads to both Edom and Arabia. And it appears from verse 6, if you look there, that complete villages or towns were captured in raids, and then the people sold off to Edom. Now, we might think that this kind of behavior happened in the past. Perhaps we might think of the transatlantic slave trade. But slavery of this kind exists today. It is estimated that in the world, one in 130 women are in some form of slavery. And in our own country, The International Justice Mission, which is a a Christian anti-slavery organization, says that 77% of UK businesses believe that there is a likelihood of slavery at some point in their supply chain, which includes some of our most used items like coffee, electronics, and clothing. Also, many are involved in the pornography industry as sex slaves. And we support that whenever we watch that kind of material. And that also, by the way, even without the slavery side, is an example of treating people as a commodity. But God will not stand for this kind of behavior. The fire of God's judgment came on Gaza. Notice uh, in verse Seven and eight. Uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron were all important Philistine cities. And God is going to turn on all of them. Their king and his people will be destroyed. And when we read here of the last of the Philistines being dead, again, rather than uh, getting tied up in knots that there were some later on in the Bible... Uh, This is poetic language describing a devastation of the population of Philistia. God judges those who exploit people for a value. 
Thirdly, Tyre, breaking your pledged word. Tyre was a mercantile center, an important uh, seaport. And it appears that the sin of Tyre is the same as that of Gaza. Uh, Notice that they also sold whole communities of captive to Edom in verse 9. But there is a difference. They don't appear to capture slaves, but sell them on using their trading powers. Now this is evil, but there is a reference here to something else. Notice in verse 10. Uh, At the end of verse 9, rather, they disregard a treaty of brotherhood. The sins of the nations here mostly seem to be sins that they committed against Israel. And Tyre had a long-standing history of good relations with Israel, dating back to treaties in David and Solomon's reign. So in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, we read... The Lord gave Solomon wisdom just as he had promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram, who was the leader of Tyre, and Solomon. The two of them made a treaty. That was in 1 Kings 5. And later on in 1 Kings 9 and chapter 13, Hiram, this leader in Tyre, called Solomon my brother in uh, 1 Kings 9, 13. And so Tyre here is breaking his pledged word probably to Israel. God will judge those nations who pledge their word and then break it. And don't we see this very often from politicians and diplomats and also from businesses? How about us? Are we people of our word or do we disregard the words that we give to people. Well, in verse 10, we see the fire of God's judgment came on Tyre for her sin. Fourthly, Edom, pursuing relentless anger. Uh, The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And in the book of Genesis, Esau is portrayed as an angry man. His father, Isaac, said this about him in Genesis 27. You will live by the sword and will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw off his yoke from off your neck. Although Jacob and Esau later were reconciled as individual brothers, their descendants were not not reconciled at all. And truly the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, lived by the sword. Their pursuing of uh, his brother refers to his relentless anger against Israel. Edom's anger is shown in its mercilessness and relentlessness in that pursuit. Notice in these verses, he slaughters the women, so he shows no mercy to them. And this anger didn't stop. It, was, it raged continually and it flamed unchecked. It didn't stop at all. And we see this kind of relentless anger in our world today, don't we? Sometimes it takes on the physical forms of fighting and murder and so on. Sometimes in warfare, anger can just get out of control. 
Uh, one time I read a horrifying book of revenge being taken on Germans in Berlin at the end of the Second World War. Anger that was horrendous and out of control. But don't even today we see the relentless anger of those who use social media platforms to pursue with a piercing tongue and a continual and unchecked rage. It's horrific to see, for example, what in our country our members of parliament are sent on social media platforms as they're pursued with horrific abuse especially our female members of parliament. Again, God will send his fire of judgment. Notice in verse 12, Teman is a southern district of Edom and Bosra a northern one. In other words, Edom from the south to the north, all of it will be consumed by God's judgment against it for its continual unrelenting anger. Fifthly, Ammon. They murdered the helpless for convenience. In verse 13, we read of the ripping open of pregnant women. And that was a brutal act of warfare in these days. The atrocity was done both to brutalize, but also to eliminate future warriors from a nation. And Ammon did this to Israel... where it mentions Gilead again, a a place in Israel, to make them move out of their area in order that Ammon could move in and extend their borders and become a bigger nation. They were ambitious. And these women and their unborn children stood in their way. I do hope you can see the parallels between here And what goes on in abortion clinics where unborn babies are murdered because they are inconvenient to the ambitions of parents, often for the most trivial of reasons. I do know there are some tragic cases, but a tragic case doesn't make abortion right. But even those tragic cases are certainly not the norm. In 2020, in England and Wales alone, the highest number of abortions since records began took place. 210,860 abortions in England and Wales. In this regard, our country is no better than these Ammonites. Because most of those were done not to extend the borders of a nation, but because those children were inconvenient to the ambitions of the parents. And the same is true of nations all over the world where this, and it is a genocide, takes place. But in verse 14, make no mistake, there will be justice for these unborn millions who have been murdered and for the women who have been brutalized like those in Gilead. Rabbah was the capital of the Ammonite kingdom, and it was consumed by the fire of God's judgment. In verse 14, Ammon 
uh, Amos rather, speaks of war cries and, and violent winds, which can refer to the Assyrian invaders that came and did cause devastation. But also the use of the word day, the day of battle and the stormy day, also can refer to the day of the Lord, a day which we'll come to later as we go through this series in Amos, a day where the Lord will judge. And in verse 15, the king and the officials who are, uh, the, the officials who promoted this policy will go into exile together. Exile was a common result of invasion by foreign enemies. It was something the Assyrians did. But notice here, it was the officials as well as their king who were judged for the sin of that nation. And in the context of abortion, it is not only those who practice that face God's judgment. It is not only those who have abortions that face God's judgment, but those who legislate for it, those officials who help it along, that also face the judgment of God. Sixthly, Moab, reveling in cruel vengeance. Uh, The sin of Moab does seem rather strange, doesn't it, when you compare it to all the other things that were going on. Uh, they, they, they dug up the bones of Edom's king and decided to have a bonfire with them. Uh, the word for ashes there uh, is literally translated as lime or whitewash. Uh, and it was used for plastering walls. And so it seems that the bones were burnt in order to make uh, this whitewash to, to just paint on people's, in people's homes. What's so bad about this? What's going on here? Well, in Amos's day, a proper burial and respect for the dead were important, just like they are today for us. If someone was to come in a funeral and start uh, abusing the coffin and, and trying to set fire to it and all kinds of things, you, you'd think that was really inappropriate and disrespectful, and they would be prosecuted for that kind of thing. And the removal of the bones to burn them demonstrated a strong disdain for that person. But the reason Moab would do this would be the equivalent of burning a flag today. The king represented the people, and so burning the bones would be taking vengeance against the Edomite nation. It was, if you like, a senseless and cruel vengeance against their people. Interestingly, a similar thing happened uh, in our country to the bones of John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English. Forty years after he had died, the enemies of the Reformation or the, and the enemies of the Bible in English dug up the bones of John Wycliffe just over in Lutterworth And they put the ashes of his bones into the river Swift so they could be never seen again. That was a a, a senseless and really pointless and cruel vengeance on a man they hated for translating the Bible into English. And nations and people often want to take revenge against one another, not willing to let things go and showing no forgiveness. 
And we can be the same with one another, can't we? We want to take vengeance. We take justice into our own hand, often doing senseless and silly things to do what is right in our own eyes. We won't forgive, but we will nurse an offense. But in verses 2 and 3, God's fire of judgment comes against Moab. Kerioth was a key Moabite city, and along with the ruler and officials, it was destroyed in war. Well, finally, and seventhly, uh, there's no room on the screen uh, for the point, but if you're writing it down, the final uh, judgment is against Judah. And they were judged for rejecting God's revelation. Rejecting God's revelation. As we come to Judah, we come to something quite different from the other nations. Whilst the other nations sinned against the moral law or their conscience, Judah here sinned against the revealed will of God given to them. Judah was Israel's southern neighbor and were, along with Israel, God's chosen people. They had the written law given to them. They had godly people among them like Amos. They had no excuse for sinning against God. But notice in verse 4 that they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. The law of the Lord is the written word or instruction from God himself. And the decrees there literally mean carved out or engraved unchangeable truth like the Ten Commandments carved on stone. Judah had received the written and unchanging word of God that showed them what a life of fellowship with God was like and what he expected of them. They had all those advantages and they rejected it. Instead of accepting God's laws and keeping his decrees, they instead went after other gods. The NIV has the phrase false gods in verse 4, but literally it can be translated as they were led astray by lies. The lies of the false prophets about false gods led Israel astray in the same way that the same lies led their ancestors astray. The equivalent today is looking at the sins within the so-called church. And I say so-called because not everyone who claims to be part of the church of Jesus Christ really is part of the church of Jesus Christ. Many churches and denominations have listened to the lies of the prophets of our culture and have been led astray, rejecting God's clear, revealed will of how his people should live. They have been intoxicated by the lies of these false prophets and have chosen to either ignore God's word or pervert it to their own ends. A prime example of that is the departure from the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage within many churches. They've accepted same-sex relationships rather than following God's word about sexual activity being right only in marriage between one man and one woman. And there are many other areas too, but I think you get the point. Those who claim to be God's people 
have been led astray by lies. But notice in verse 5, God's judgment will fall on Judah. But what's interesting in verse 5 is that this judgment that God says is coming upon Jerusalem is no different from the judgment that came on every other nation in this passage. Just because people might claim to be God's people, if they are found to be not God's people, they will not be spared God's judgment and will face it like everybody else. And this is a warning to those who claim to be Christian but have departed from God's word, isn't it? You can claim to be a Christian but then find that you're not at all. Jesus speaks of this in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, these seven oracles against the nations show us that justice is coming. Even when people die and seem in our eyes, to have gotten away with it. They will die and wake up before the judge of all the earth. And even people that seem to get justice on this side will find out what true justice looks like when they stand before our God. There is no escape from God's judgment. No person will get away with their crimes. Some people can live their whole lives and seem to get away with it, Not so in eternity when they face God. When you feel like someone is not getting their just desserts, be assured they certainly will. God knows what each nation has done and he is the Lord of all nations. Kings and queens, prime ministers and presidents, diplomats and despots, all will be held to account, including the nations of our day. In Matthew's gospel, uh, in chapter 25, we read of Jesus coming in his glory and sitting on a throne of glory where all the nations are gathered before him and he will judge them, separating them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from from the goats. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is the judge of all the nations. And this should give us great comfort when we see injustice. Jesus will judge. Nobody will get away with anything. But there should be another response that we have as well. Because we must not sit back and think, ah, great, God's going to judge So let's be okay with the mess that the world is in because God's going to sort it out. That's not the right way to look at it either. Because the problem with that response is to forget that we are part of the problem too. Next week, we're going to see that the response is not to look smugly at how bad other nations are because in the very next verse, the refrain of the Lord says turns on Israel. We also deserve God's judgment, don't we? 
Don't you recognize how we are part of the problem? Not just our nation, but us, each one of us as individuals. Rather than looking at the state of the world and saying, oh, look how bad they all are. We should long for the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That he would take the judgment that they deserve. Because there is another way of justice being done for the sins of the world, and that is Jesus being judged on our behalf. And so when we see evil in the world, rather than just longing for God to smite them, we should also long for these evil people to know Jesus. Because it's when people put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow him that we begin to see the change in the world that we long for. Because when God's kingdom comes into this world and breaks in, we begin to see among God's people the world that we all want. The world where justice and righteousness rule. And so the oracle against the nations in Amos's day should be fuel for mission in our day. So that we would be praying for people in all nations to come to know the Savior. And so as we look at the Ukraine and what's going on there, and we see injustice and horrible uh, treatment of human beings made in God's image as we see here in Amos, and we see it going on there, how then should we be praying? Well, we should pray for God's mercy and God's comfort. We should pray for God's justice to be done on evildoers. But we should also repent of our own nation's part in the sins and problems of the world. It's easy for us as a nation to point the finger at Russia and not recognize our own sins as a nation. But we should pray as Christians that the gospel would go forth in the Ukraine and in Russia, that God's kingdom would come, that many would come in this time of crisis to recognize their need of Jesus Christ, and that when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, we would see the material difference of the peace and justice and righteousness that the gospel brings. That's how we should pray. And so in that regard, why don't we pray and turn our eyes heavenward to the God who is not just the judge of the nations, but also its saviour. Let's bow our heads and pray to him. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the righteous and holy God who is the judge of all the world. And we know that you will administer justice on all people and all nations. We thank you that nobody will just get away with their sin. 
But in one sense, that is a terrifying thought. Because as we've looked at the sins of the nations in Amos, we confess the sins of our own nation. We have exploited the vulnerable. We have murdered the unborn. We have pursued paths of anger and vengeance that are uncalled for. We deserve your judgment and can only ask for your mercy. And so as we look at the behavior of other nations, deliver us from being haughty that we may be humble. And so we come to you humbly with our prayers on behalf of the people of Ukraine this evening. We pray that there would be a return to peace in that land. That you would turn the hearts of rulers to that course rather than more war. We pray for justice for that nation. But we pray also for your protection over the vulnerable, for those who are disabled, for children and the elderly. We pray that mercy would be shown to them even by their enemies. And as we know justice will be done in your time, we do still pray for it to be done now, that the people of that land would be able to have their land and live in it in peace. But we especially want to pray for the believers in the Ukraine. We know that many have stayed in the country We know your people are meeting today on this Lord's Day. Please enable them to stand out in that land for their courage, for their kindness, for their humility. May they be salt and light in that place and bring your glory in their good deeds. Give your people wisdom in in how they serve. Please provide for the needs that they have. And we pray that your gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, would go forth powerfully in that land. Only you can bring good out of such a tragic situation. And we ask that you would bring the good of people coming to know Jesus Christ As the fearful and the confused look for hope, may your people point them to Jesus. And help us, Lord, as your people, to continue to pray effectively and confidently to the God of the nations. We sometimes wonder whether our prayers can make any difference at all. But rather, help us to remember that we should dread to think what would happen if your people stopped praying. We come to you as our Heavenly Father, as your children, in the name of our mighty Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to close uh, by singing, uh, singing of how in the, the Bible the story doesn't end with the nations being judged. 
it actually ends with nations praising God. We will see judgment on the nations, but thankfully there is an opportunity for all nations to come to know Jesus Christ. And at the end of the Bible, people from every tribe and tongue and people group will stand and sing together of our wonderful, wonderful Savior. So we're going to first of all stand go and sing, go forth and tell, reminding us to go and share the gospel to these nations in need of it. And then finally, let the earth resound with songs of praise. Let's stand together as we sing. Great name of the Lord, and so. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you we've been able to praise you tonight as your people. We thank you we can join with brothers and sisters in all nations. We thank you you are worthy of praise and that you reign forever. We praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name.